driven simply and only by the drive that took her to the lighthouse, to be with her husband again. She could not repair him, so she has turned into something like him. None of this consciously, of course. So how should she be telling this story to Lomax? Until the final scene, we are to understand that Lena is Lena, full stop. Changed by her time in the Shimmer in as much as anyone is changed by a fantastical experience, and the deaths of those close to you, but fundamentally the same person. And to be fair, even in the end, knowing that she has been in some fundamental way altered, physically, probably mentally, perhaps spiritually or by whatever measure you might suggest, her personality has not changed. She is still Lena. She still wants what Lena wants, as far as we can tell. So what purpose do these interrogation scenes serve beyond teasers for a wider audience that this film would ever find? Take these scenes out and what is different? I have not read ahead in the script, deliberately, so as not to know how the script, which does not make use of these flashes forward, transitions us out of the shimmer, how it ends Lena's journey, her reunion with Kane, her transformation, or maybe it ends some other way altogether. Obviously, I am familiar with the film and its structure, leaving the script to be discovered as I pick at the pieces of the film and leave the entirety farther and farther behind offers me some mystery, something unknown in my own journey into the shimmer, as it were. There it is dreamlike, and I wonder where it will take me. Not nightmarish. I do not speak of this show as a show very much. I let it simply be a strange retelling of the film with some background and behind-the-scenes information, behind the scenes of the film, that is, slipping in from time to time. Not always. Allow, if you will, an explicit behind-the-scenes note for this show. I chose to do this show at this slow, one-episode-a-week pace, unlike so many other movies-by-minute shows, even a few of my own, for two basic reasons. One, to make it possible to produce it, as bringing all of these various levels of storytelling and background and analysis and description takes time, and writing these scripts beforehand, editing the audio afterward, takes more time. Two, to detach myself from the film as a whole, week by week, so that by the time I come to the end of the film, it will have been close to two years since I last viewed it in its entirety. I will probably come back to the whole in time for the final episode, but not before that. That is the plan. I want the whole to become more abstracted the farther into its pieces I go. Sometimes, Sometimes it, is it is beautiful. We linger on Lena momentarily, then in the script we cut to exterior swamp day. A tree in the swamp the trunk is clustered with fat mounds of moss, flourishing like petri dish cultures. They have bright colors, not just greens, but intense reds and purples and rust colors. They look like disease. The film offers something else, visually interesting and colorful, but not as readily off-putting and strange. Second 17 angled directly downward into shallow water. Multiple fish, long, slender, transparent save for a few red spots on some of them. At first we might not think these alien species, and maybe they are not. These could simply be fish we do not normally see in our everyday lives because most of us do not spend time in swamps like this one. Two green bulbs in the upper right quadrant of the screen might catch our notice, floating together in the vague reflection of some overhead lighting. The sun refracted through the shimmer, reflected in the surprisingly clear swamp water. Two flowers floating in the lower left might grab us, one yellow, one more orange, but close enough together that we might suspect they grow on the same plant like those flowers Lena found outside the fishing hut. A string of three blue flowers of the same type come into view as the camera moves downward. Six fish at first, 
five heading downward, one barely visible by the blue flowers heading its own direction. Five women, perhaps, seeking to solve the mystery of one man, a simple visual metaphor that is immediately reinforced as one of the five fish with the least red swims downward and crosses over the lone fish by the blue flowers. Lena over Cain. But another fish comes in from the bottom and one of the four left behind turns away. And the fish from the bottom has something wrong with it. Now, if not before, we can see that these are not just regular swamp fish that might be unfamiliar to us. This new arrival has two tails. The fish of the four that turned away swims downward. The remaining three huddle with their heads together. A new fish comes into frame at the top left. This one has two tails as well, and its extra tail is longer than the one that remains in line with the rest of its body. This animal is clearly not right. One of the three huddled together leaves the group and heads downward, and I want to know who decided how this brief sequence, cutting away to a long shot across the swamp after only nine seconds, would go. Should I assume the seeming metaphor was deliberate and linger, try to identify as the new fish coming up from the bottom, an altered Lena, returning before she is even completely gone? Is the one that separates from the group after her shepherd, first to die? Or is that one Ventress heading for the lighthouse damn the group? And who is this twisted one off to the left? Or was the initial grouping a coincidence more noticeable because of this minute-by-minute -minute approach? Why are there three blue flowers when so much in the shimmer comes in pairs? Why do some of the fish form with extra parts some form of red spots and some seem hardly alien at all? because they feel like some fish we have probably seen before in some nature documentary or another. This is, of course, why this shot exists here in the film, to get our mind racing, to start us wondering, even if subconsciously, what is going on here. Gators with extra teeth and pale skin, different flowers growing out of the same branches, now twisted glass fish with too many tails. But we cut before we can think on it. Where lies the strangling fruit? What any sinner shall bring under the earth or above, share with the worms in the very air, shall gather in the darkness, revel in the knowledge of the power of their lives. The sinner shall place shadow and light for the impatience. There shall be in the black grace and a mercy that their teeth shall devour and darkness which is of an age. That which reveal the revelation, all that decays is earth. The shadows walk the world in a monstrous flower that came from the hand and expand the mind beyond the seeds of the dead to bear. But whether it shares with the worms on green fields or out to sea and surround the world to revelation, and from the dim-lit strangling fruit, and that never could be writhe, rejoice, for there is no sin never seen, nor seeds of the dead, with the sun shining in the shadows, ripe and in the bloom dark flowers, and the golden shall split open to sustain and herald the softness in the abyss, like the petals of forgotten and reanimated blossom within the skull. Not knowing. Before we can think on it too long, we should cut away from the film itself to return to the novel, more of the biologist's take on the place she calls the tower. Quote, so we returned to the tower, all four of us. Sunlight came down dappled through the moss and leaves, created archipelagos of light on the flat surface of the entrance. It remained unremarkable, inert, in no way ominous, and yet it took an act of will to stand there, staring at the entry point. I noticed the anthropologist checking her black box, was relieved to see it did not display a glowing red light. If it had, we would have had to abort our exploration, move on to other things. I did not want that, despite the touch of fear. How deep do you think it goes down? The anthropologist asked. Remember that we are to put our faith in your measurements, 
the psychologist answered with a slight frown. The measurements do not lie. The structure is 61.4 feet in diameter. It is raised 7.9 inches from the ground. The stairwell appears to have been positioned at or close to due north, which may tell us something about its creation, eventually. It is made of stone and coquina, not of metal or of bricks. These are facts. That it wasn't on the maps means only that a storm may have uncovered the entrance. I found the psychologist's faith in measurements and her rationalization for the tower's absence from maps oddly endearing. Perhaps she meant merely to reassure us, but I would like to believe she was trying to reassure herself. Her position to lead and possibly to know more than us must have been difficult and lonely. I hope it's only about six feet deep so we can continue mapping, the surveyor said, trying to be lighthearted, but then she and we all recognized the term six feet under, ghosting through her syntax, and a silence settled over us. I want you to know that I cannot stop thinking of it as a tower, I confessed. I can't see it as a tunnel. It seemed important to make the distinction before our descent, even if it influenced their evaluation of my mental state. I saw a tower plunging into the ground. The thought that we stood at its summit made me feel a little dizzy. All three stared at me then, as if I were the strange cry at dusk, and after a moment, the psychologist said, grudgingly, If that helps make you more comfortable, then I don't see the harm. A silence came over us again, there under the canopy of trees. A beetle spiraled up toward the branches, trailing dust motes. I think we all realized that only now had we truly entered Area X. I'll go first and see what's down there, the surveyor said, finally, and we were happy to defer to her. The initial stairwell curved steeply downward and the steps were narrow, so the surveyor would have to back her way into the tower. We used sticks to clear the spiderwebs as she lowered herself into position on the stairwell. She teetered there, weapon slung across her back, looking up at us. She had tied her hair back and it made the lines of her face seem tight and drawn. Was this the moment when we were supposed to stop her? To come up with some other plan? If so, none of us had the nerve. With a strange smirk, almost as if judging us, the surveyor descended until we could only see her face framed in the gloom below, and then not even that. She left an empty space that was shocking to me, as if the reverse had actually happened, as if a face had suddenly floated into view out of the darkness. I gasped, which drew a stare from the psychologist. The anthropologist was too busy staring down into the stairwell to notice any of it. Is everything okay? The psychologist called out to the surveyor. Everything had been fine just a second before. Why would anything be different now? The surveyor made a sharp grunt in answer as if agreeing with me. For a few moments more, we could still hear the surveyor struggling on those short steps. Then came a silence, and then another movement, at a different rhythm, which for a terrifying moment seemed like it might come from a second source. But then the surveyor called up to us. Clear to this level. This level. Something within me thrilled to the fact that my vision of a tower was not yet disproven. That was the signal for me to descend with the anthropologist, while the psychologist stood watch. Time to go, the psychologist said, as perfunctorily as if we were in school and class was letting out. An emotion that I could not quite identify surged through me, and for a moment I saw dark spots in my field of vision. I followed the anthropologist so eagerly down through the remains of webs and the embalmed husks of insects into the cool brackishness of that place that I almost tripped her. My last view of the world above the psychologist peering down at me with a slight frown, and behind her the trees, the blue of the sky almost blinding against the darkness of the sides of the stairwell. Below, shadows spread across the walls. The temperature dropped, 
and sound became muffled, the soft steps absorbing our tread. Approximately 20 feet beneath the surface, the structure opened out into a lower level. The ceiling was about 8 feet high, which meant a good 12 feet of stone lay above us. The flashlight of the surveyor's assault rifle illuminated the space, but she was faced away from us, surveying the walls, which were an off-white and devoid of any adornment. A few cracks indicated either the passage of time or some sudden stressor. The level appeared to be the same circumference as the exposed top, which again supported the idea of a single, solid structure burying the earth. It goes farther, the surveyor said, and pointed with her rifle to the far corner, directly opposite the opening where we had come out onto that level. A rounded archway stood there, and a darkness that suggested downward steps. A tower, which made this level not so much a floor as a landing or part of the turret. She started to walk toward the archway while I was still engrossed in examining the walls with my flashlight. Their very blankness mesmerized me. I tried to imagine the builder of this place, but could not. End quote. We will leave it there for now. Cut to Exterior, Swamp, Day. A distant shot. The flat-bottomed boats gliding over black water. Swampland floating by. Serene. The first boat holds Dr. Ventress, Raddick, and Thornson with Thornson paddling. The second boat holds Shepard and Lena. The shot lingers, seems perhaps even deliberately slowed down. Then second 34 we cut to Lena paddling, and her oar through the water cuts into the gentility of the music. Lena reacts to her arm as if the pain is sudden. Her sleeve is already pushed up her forearm, so that there are marks on her arm is obvious. But she stops paddling to look closer. Behind her, still paddling, Shepard looks interested. While Shepard paddles, Lena is preoccupied by a mark on her forearm, the script says. The camera tilts down to see, as she does. It looks like a faint bruise. Lena pushes at it with her thumb, vaguely puzzled about where she picked it up, the script tells us. Shepard, off screen. You hurt? Lena, just, just a, a bruise. bruse. Must have gotten, gotten that from the gator. gator. She has picked up her oar to continue paddling again before she finishes the thought. We cut to close on Shepard, second 50. Angled slightly from her left, which means the camera is on the opposite side of the boat than it was in the previous shot. Not a problem unless it happens too much in the scene. Shepard. Yeah. yeah. And she says it like she knows it is not just a bruise. And I cannot help but back up a few seconds to see if Shepard's forearm is visible and she has her own tattoo forming there. It is. She does not. The script simply says beat. But Shepard looks down, bites on her lower lip, looks up at Lena, out of frame to the left, then down again. She is contemplating what comes next. She looks at Lena and her focus remains there until a bird calls in the distance. She looks off to her left, then down at the water again, and she speaks. Shepard, continue. So, where'd you learn to shoot? She looks at Lena again, and we cut second 58 to angle on Lena and Shepard from front of boat. Lena starts to turn to look over her left shoulder at Shepard, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Word.